So we move this week to think about the second of the messages to the churches uh, as we continue our little series in Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation. But first thing to mention is that this is a message to the church. It's not seven messages to seven churches. It is one message to the church in seven places. This letter to the churches, Jesus uh, message to the churches would have been brought round as a kind of circular letter and we're now at the second stop but the letter would have been read in full with a little bit specifically for each of the churches as as whoever was carrying this letter made their way round. So the message is best understood held together and Francis spoke last week about the church being called to love and this week we're thinking about the church being called to suffer. But those two things are not unrelated, are they? We saw in Ephesus that the, uh, the challenge to the church was that they had forgotten the love that they had at first. They were not willing, perhaps, to suffer for that love because suffering actually is a test of love, isn't it? Our willingness to suffer proves the sincerity of our love. And here, as we reach the church at Smyrna, we find a suffering church The call to the churches, the message to the church given to all seven is a call to what faithful discipleship means. And we look at different characteristics. We looked at the call to love last week, as I mentioned, and today we're looking at the call to suffer. But as we look at each, let's look at them all together too. And hopefully by the end of our little seven-week series, we'll understand a little bit more about what Christ might be calling us to here as a church in Oxshott in 2023. So, the message to the church at Smyrna. First, what do we know about Smyrna as a place? Well, it was a beautiful and prosperous city. It was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, just up the coast. It was known as the Pride of Asia at the time, and it was the next stop, as I said, on this sort of circular journey of around the second, uh, the, the seven churches. But 700 years before the book of Revelation was written, uh, the city of Smyrna was destroyed, completely uh, laid waste, and was left desolate and uh, in ruins for 300 years or more. So the church that is being written to at this time uh, is a church which knew what it meant for a city to rise from the ashes, as it were. It was known as a phoenix city. Uh, and it, was, it had risen some ways from its own ruins. So when we hear about life coming from death, perhaps that's something that would resonate particularly with the church at Smyrna. Today, the city of Smyrna is Izmir in Turkey, uh, which you may be familiar with. It still continues to be a prosperous and beautiful city. We don't actually know a great deal about the church at Smyrna, apart from what we hear here in Revelation, because it isn't mentioned in the book of Acts or in any of the other New Testament letters. This is about the only time it appears, although there's a sort of traditional understanding that Paul probably visited Smyrna and established the church there on probably his third missionary journey. He probably visited Smyrna and established a church there. But what we do know for certain about Smyrna is that it was a church that was suffering facing afflictions, 
And it, we also know that it's one of the on, only two of the seven churches addressed which isn't rebuked or challenged in some way, which is just encouraged in its faithfulness. Every other, uh, apart from two of the seven, have a challenge in their message from Christ. But here, there's simply encouragement to remain faithful. Nothing said against it. The church at Smyrna was suffering, and their suffering was real and immediate, and it wasn't getting any better. The specifics of their suffering actually are not set out in this letter. Uh, We don't know exactly what was happening to them, but we do have four characteristics of their suffering, which we'll think about a little bit this morning. Poverty, slander, prison, and death is what the, the church at Smyrna was facing. And these afflictions were being uh, levelled at the church by both political and religious groups. The Roman Empire and the Jewish people were both opposing and persecuting the Christians in Smyrna. And almost certainly the reason that they were doing so was because of the church's faithfulness to Christ and his teaching. The Christians in Smyrna would have found themselves in a city where there was a temple called the Dea Roma, which was a temple to the god of the Roman Empire, uh, a sort of personified Rome. And there was an expectation that all Roman citizens would have given uh, worship at that temple. And everybody in the Roman Empire was expected to make sacrifices and give worship at the uh, Dea Roma temple. But the Christians would have refused to participate in that. They would have seen it as idolatrous to be participating in this system of empire worship. And they would have refused to call Caesar Lord because they knew that their true Lord was Jesus. So they wouldn't have called Caesar Lord and they wouldn't have given worship at the temple. And in a city which was famous for its patriotism and its loyalty, their acts would have been seen as rebellious and disgraceful and treacherous. So they would have had political opposition, political persecution. The Jewish people in the Roman Empire were actually given religious concessions in worship. They were allowed to continue their own religious traditions and worship. But often, in order to maintain that advantageous position, uh, groups of, of Jews in the city would, would collude to uh, vilify those others who were not giving worship at the temple in Rome. So they would keep Rome on side by helping them find those who were being rebels. So there was Jewish hostility and there was Roman hostility. And certainly this would have been what uh, would have been the, the root cause of this affliction that the church was suffering. The afflictions of poverty, slander and uh, prison and death. So let's have a little look at each of those uh, afflictions, each of those sufferings, uh, sort of one by one. Perhaps poverty uh, is something which is surprising when you think that Smyrna was a prosperous, successful city. It was right on the coast. It was a trading port. They had, they had lots of businesses there. Um, perhaps it would, you would expect that the church there wouldn't be a church in poverty. We know that the Christian church was often made up from people from lowly backgrounds. So it wouldn't be surprising if there was the poor amongst the church. 
And we also know that the church is called to generosity. So it wouldn't be surprising in some ways if the church was giving away such a lot of its resources that it impoverished itself. But neither of those two things seems to match with poverty being an affliction, a, a suffering. Those things uh, just don't seem, neither being made up of people from lowly backgrounds nor acts of generosity seem to be afflictions. And probably the more likely explanation of the poverty of the church at Smyrna is that there was economic discrimination against Christians in Smyrna. They were uh, not being traded with and they were dedicated um, to honesty in their transactions in their businesses. And so all of those uh, trade guilds and organisations that existed in that city uh, would have perhaps not always been 100% Uh, above board in the way that they did their their dealings and the Christians would have refused to participate in these um, less than honest dealings. They were dedicated because of their faith to honesty and integrity. So it seems like they were uh, just excluded from trades uh, and perhaps not unlikely too is that um, their homes and possessions were being taken from them by the authorities in order to try to make them comply with whatever they were being asked to do. So they were having things taken from them and they were not having the opportunity to gain economic prosperity within their city. In any case, it seems like the poverty of the church is not a concern to Christ, in a sense. He says, I know you are poor, though you are rich. It's not the worldly wealth of, uh, of the church which God himself calls us to, but the spiritual wealth of the church, which he uh, commends. So the first challenge, I think, to us is to not confuse economic success with God's favour and God's blessing. The church is called to suffer poverty, but perhaps too often we see prosperity as a sign of God's favour and God's blessing. The second suffering which the church is experiencing at Smyrna is slander. They're being misrepresented uh, and misspoken of. People are accusing them of blasphemy. They're being insulted and lied about. False rumours are abounding about them. And they're being started and they're being spread with the intention of undermining and diminishing them. Do we sometimes confuse popularity or being well thought of, or well spoken of, as a sign of God's blessing and God's favour? Do we think of our reputation as something, as individuals or as a church, as something to be protected at all costs, or are we willing to suffer slander for Christ's sake? The third suffering that the church at Smyrna is facing, is prison. Many of the earliest Christians were imprisoned for their faith. It's in fact, when you look through the pages of the New Testament, it's astonishing just how much of it was actually written from inside prisons. An awful lot. And almost every New Testament person that you can think of off the top of your head would have spent some time in prison. 
Perhaps today we think of Christians being imprisoned as something which rarely happens, and and in our country that is true. But around the world, people are regularly imprisoned for their faith. In places where uh, the Christian church is opposed, authorities regularly imprison Christians. In Afghanistan, Burma, Pakistan, China, Eritrea, Iran... North Korea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Saudi Arabia, at least today there are Christians who are known by name in prison for their faith. That's at least, that's 20 countries at least around the world. If you want to find out more about Christians who are suffering in prison because of their faith, uh, there are ch- charities such as Open Doors and Release International who work to um, secure the safety of those prisoners uh, for the time that they're in prison and also work for their release. The willingness to be imprisoned for our faith is something which, by God's, by God's uh, grace, we do not have to face in this country But let us not confuse our freedom, our freedom to go about our daily business as we would like, with a sign of God's favour and blessing. We're very fortunate, yes, but prison is a reality for Christians around the world even today. Finally, death. The call of verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, Christ says to his church at Smyrna. The reality of the possibility of dying for their faith was there for the church in Smyrna. And in many of those places which I've just listed, the reality of dying for your faith as a Christian is a very real and immediate one. The history of Christians dying for their faith begins with Steve, uh, Stephen, the stoning of, of Stephen in the New Testament, and sadly continues to this day. People around the world are still killed for their faith. A few years ago, I think it was in 2003 or 2013, there was a widely published statistic that 100,000 Christians around the world are killed for their faith. And there was quite a lot of outroar and uh, outrage in the media that this number seemed very, very large. And indeed, it was seen to be perhaps slightly larger than it should have been, uh, inflated by a particular uh, war that was going on at that time. But those who criticised that number uh, then did their own research and perhaps conservative estimate of how many Christians around the world are killed for their faith each year. And rather than finding that 100,000 are killed uh, through independent secular research into this, a conservative estimate is around 10,000 Christians are killed every year around the world for their faith. I still think that is an astonishingly large number. And that is probably at the very lowest um, end of the estimates. Even now. So, let us not confuse our physical safety and our physical well-being 
with God's favour and God's blessing. Because for the church at Smyrna, the reality of poverty, slander, prison and death, the outward signs looked very, very poor, didn't they? But inwardly, Christ commends them. I want to just explore uh, with you the story of one of the members of the church at Smyrna, who we do know a little bit about, um, a man named Polycarp, who you may have heard of before. Polycarp uh, was a member of the church of Smyrna. Probably by the time this letter to the church was written, he would have been a member of the church. Uh, He was possibly even made the leader of the church at Smyrna by John himself. Uh, That's what tradition uh, sort of says, that that, uh, he was consecrated bishop of the church of Smyrna, maybe by John himself, the writer of Revelation. In the mid-150s, aged 86... Polycarp, the leader of the church at Smyrna, had been uh, compelled by his congregation to leave the city for his own safety, to go into hiding because he was being uh, pursued and they were worried about his well-being. So he did. He fled the city at their pleading, but he was tracked down by those who, uh, who wanted him killed. But when they found him in his hiding place, he didn't try to run away from them or to hide, he simply said, can I pray before you take me away? Which he did. They let him, and he went and he prayed for two hours, and then he went with his captors. His captors took him, and they told him strongly and repeatedly to uh, refute the, 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 and recant and revile Christ, so to renounce his faith. And he... Uh, was told he must give sacrifice and worship to the emperor Caesar. And he said that he would not. He said these words. He said, for 86 years I have served him, that is Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? Well, his captors then said, if you're not going to do it for us, then we have lions and we will throw you to the lions. And he said, call them. He wasn't put off, even at 86. He said, call the wild beasts. So the captors continued, if you are not uh, going to be convinced by wild beasts, then we'll build a fire and we'll burn you. So they started gathering wood for a fire. And he requested Polycarp that he not be tied to the stake So he stood himself by the stake as they lit the wood that they had gathered. And he prayed as he stood, he prayed this prayer. O Lord, almighty God, I thank you for counting me worthy this day to share the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. And then, remaining faithful to Christ to the very end, he died. The call to the church here, exemplified by the church at Smyrna, is a call to willingness to suffer with and for Christ, even to the point of death. For us to not confuse worldly popularity, comfort and ease with God's blessing and favour. Jesus' words throughout the New Testament uh, remind us 
that the, the call for Christians is not to a life of comfort and of ease. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult and persecute you. In Luke, he said, woe to you when people speak well of you. His assurance, Jesus' assurance in John's gospel is if the world hates you, it hated me first. And also, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus himself was no stranger to poverty, slander, arrest, and death. And he didn't expect that his followers would be either. The message to the church at Smyrna reminds us that faithfulness to Christ most often will not look like worldly comfort and success. Yet, it is the gaining of the crown of life which we have through our faithfulness. The ultimate reward is given to those who remain faithful. So what about us living in 2023 in Oxshott? Are we willing to suffer for Christ? What might it mean for us to suffer for Christ? How far are we willing to move ourselves away from comfort and towards discomfort? Even to death? I truly hope that I never have to find out for myself whether I am willing to suffer to the point of death for Christ because I suspect that I would fall woefully short in my faithfulness. But I pray that day by day I might become more willing to suffer and less willing to compromise even in the small things which lead to my comfort or my benefit The challenge, I suppose, for us in a place where the prospect of death for our faith or even prison, slander or poverty is is relatively slim, is are there ways in which we are willing to compromise even when perhaps it's just convenient or comfortable for us to do so? The challenge is for us to remain unwaveringly and uncompromisingly faithful no matter what the consequence of that faithfulness may be? Are we willing to make decisions which are through and through made in accordance and integrity with our faith, even when they lead to our detriment and our discomfort, even when it's horrible for us to do so? Are we willing to say, this is what Christ calls me to Are we willing for our life to be so characterised by Christ that we would suffer? Because I do believe that our our willingness to uh, remain faithful and our suffering are linked. The more faithful we are to Christ, I do believe we will suffer more. Our earthly comforts, in many ways, are the enemy of our life of faith. And maintaining them often is the way in which we find ourselves compromising. There's no doubt, as we become less willing to compromise, our suffering may increase. But the call to Christians 
in this world is to die to ourselves and to live for Christ alone. And how much greater is that promise of the prize which we will gain when we do live faithfully and uncompromisingly for Christ. Perhaps we feel a little afraid of the consequences. I know uh, that facing death would be a terrifying prospect. But the call is simple. Do not be afraid, says Christ. Remain faithful. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus says the same words. He says, do not be afraid, just believe. Do not be afraid of the consequences of living for Christ in this world. Because a bold and uncompromising church is truly a witness. And when we live a life of faithfulness, we are reassured. Jesus himself, the first and the last, is in control of our ultimate destiny. And Christ himself, who died and was made alive, is in charge of our eternal life. As I finish, I want to take you perhaps back to your baptism, which if, like me, you were about five months old, you won't remember. But at baptisms, as we take children in our arms and we mark them with the cross, we pray a prayer for them. And held alongside the suffering of the church at Smyrna, that prayer and the depth of it is huge. And if you're a baptised Christian here today, words along these lines would have been prayed for you at your baptism. Words which speak of boldness and faithfulness of this kind that we are called to as Christians and as a church. So as I pray this prayer for us all, um, perhaps just imagine yourself at your own baptism having this prayer prayed for you. And let's make it our own prayer this morning as we seek to be a church who would be willing to suffer discomfort dishonour, even death perhaps for Christ. Let's pray. Let us not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified. Let us fight valiantly as disciples of Christ against sin, the world and the devil and remain faithful to Christ even to the end of our life. And may Almighty God deliver us from the powers of darkness, restore in us the image of his glory, and lead us in the light and obedience of Christ. Amen.